0: Blog TALK RADIO
1: The other side of the news is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight.
2: We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus,
3: to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous
2: commentary based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment.
4: Our desire is
1: to awaken your imagination imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community.
2: Learning new things, Asking questions, getting compelling answers,
3: and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity.
1: We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way.
2: Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events.
3: Tune in for a balanced view
2: of the other side of the news.
1: Good morning, good night, and good evening. My name is Timothy Saunders. I'm one of your co-hosts on this 27th edition of The Other Side of the News. I'm speaking to you this morning from the southwest Turkey, which for many of you is situated on the other side of this majestic rotating globe. I'll soon be joined by co-host and producer, Kinthia, together with co-host and researcher, Annette Driscoll, who are both currently inmates in the COVID lockdown state of California. This show is entitled, Pirates of the Constitution. Following our fascinating guest last week, Trial, it is clear, very clear, there is so much more to learn about the way we have been programmed to live out our life according to a set of rules that some would correlate with enslavement. Much of which we base our journey through life relates directly to the Constitution. However, not all constitutions are equal. Some are verbal, some are written, and some are both. But have not yet been ratified. With regard to the way people around the world are being treated in response to COVID, useless mask wearing, anti social distancing, and draconian lockdown measures, we are seeing different levels of brutality and severity in different countries. Enforcement hotspots include Australia, UK, USA, and some others. Could this be random, geographical, or climate orientated? Is there perhaps a correlation between these hotspots? and their constitutions. I very much look forward to hearing our guests' perspective regarding this awakening process, all with a view to illuminate the best path to lead us to a positive outcome. You may find us at www.theothersideofmidnight.com, click on the other side of the news in the drop-down menu, or kindly scroll down to tonight's white banner, The Other Side of the News. There you will see details for this show, quick links to our bios, as well as links to show items, references, and selected research. As usual, there is a huge collection of information to read, watch, and listen to, most of which has been hand-picked from independent sources. I urge you to watch them, and even download copies of them sooner than later, as the censorship bots are working around the clock to rewrite our history in real time. As we positively encourage our listeners to co-create a better future, You will find the call-in telephone number below tonight's banner. If you have a relevant question, or perhaps would like to share an important observation, please dial 1 if you're outside of North America, followed by 917-889-8802. You will come through to our sound engineer in the control tower, Keith Morgan, who will guide you to an appropriate entry in our conversation. We will take your calls in the last 45 minutes of this two-hour show after we have laid out the foundations of our discussions. During the last seven seven revolutions, we have once again seen many remarkable events in the news to discuss each topic and to present each one in correct context could easily take up one show by itself. However, last Saturday, we saw tens of thousands of people turn out to many more freedom rallies around the world. While David Icke was permitted to speak in London, Dr. Heiko Schoening, One of the German doctors who has recently spoken out about the pandemic, together with more than a thousand other doctors, was inappropriately arrested and held overnight. The German and Belgian doctors we mentioned last week have now been joined by many more groups and doctors of medical professionals, including the new group from Spain. It is truly remarkable how many people have now awoken from their deep state hypnosis to join the rapidly increasing group of pandemic atheists. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why one of the most prominent US citizens and his wife have just been reported to have gone down with a bad case of the COVIDs. Naturally, I would not wish a virus on anyone. Well, almost no one. I can think of a software developer. Oh, and perhaps a certain member of the CDC. Oh, and and a statistician from the Imperial College and selected members from the WHO. Actually, I do have quite a lust. But that's another story. However, regarding the president, I wonder if he is using this event either to influence the people in relation to the pandemic, or perhaps his advisers have persuaded him this will improve his odds on election day. Of course, he may also be taking a 14-day holiday like Boris Johnson, the prime puppet of the UK, did earlier in the year when he appeared to become so utterly bored with the daily briefings that he succumbed to take a covid vacation, with all these points, time will tell, as clearly we have long passed the point where mainstream news is reliable. However, from my research this week, all the wheels are rapidly falling off the COVID pandemic wagon, leaving only sinister, aggressive, and brutal enforcement of a set of inappropriate rules uh, that are now totally anachronistic. Let me remind you, the UK government itself downgraded COVID-19 just before the first lockdown was brought into force. So if there was no perpetrator to start with, and now there are no significant or meaningful numbers to substantiate this pandemic, then why on earth are these measures being enforced and with such brutality? That's right. It's not about health, it's about control and the premeditated precision power grab of our freedom. Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers and activists who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream and social media propaganda to make your own independent research to stop acquiescing and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. David Lindsay, our guest, is such an individual. I look forward to him joining us very shortly. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Anetta. How is it in Alcatraz?
3: <laughs> That's funny. We are not very far from there,
5: actually. <laughs>
1: right. I heard. I heard it well, grown. It, They'd put a whole state in the in the, uh, in, the it, in the area. But it um, certainly.
5: It does feel like it. <laughs> But la- yesterday I was crossing uh, the San Rafael Bridge, and you couldn't see anything, Alcatraz or anything else, for all the smoke. So you know, that's another story. Um, but yeah, it's it's really they're not letting up at all. Um, and in fact, you know, I've had incidents with individuals. I just just went out and got some uh, cat food, and individuals that aren't even in stores telling me I need to put a mask on. Um, I told them they needed to stay out of my anti-social distancing space if they were concerned. Um, But, you know, it's and and I've had friends that have had other people screaming and yelling at them on the street. So it's gotten really, really aggressive. Um, I did speak last week about how uh, desolate uh, San Francisco and how depressing it was to be there. So, yeah, it's 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 I hope that we get the shift soon. (laughs) What do you think, Cynthia?
3: Well, yes, I'm I'm actually thinking about all the students that are being uh, locked up in prison. So you might say in the university forced it to wear masks and, you know, and I think about our president coming down positive with a test. I'm thinking, well, let's see. There are a lot of people who have pneumonia. They test positive. It doesn't mean they're going to die. It doesn't mean. You know, positive doesn't mean a death sentence. The universities, the, all these students that are being tested—you know—they quote had these cases, but no, one, only two people hospitalized, no deaths. I mean, I, you know, it's—I'm thinking, well, I wonder if this is going to be the experience to watch the president, and maybe he doesn't show any symptoms. I don't, you know, I have no idea what game is going on here. I. I really feel that it is a game. I don't trust the test. It's been proved over and over again, not to be accurate. And I'm just so concerned about our students. I'm a parent. And when I look at the children walking down the street, little kids with masks, and now being forced to go to school or not go to school, do Zoom education, being isolated from other students, you know, this is going to have a lasting effect on our children. That's really what's getting me feeling raw. Is is the pain I feel for our students?
1: Definitely. In the in the UK, uh, I've been following the headlines, and this week it's been brought to my attention that uh, I think one of the the ministers I, I can't remember which one in the UK government was saying that will. Students be allowed home at Christmas from university. You know, people that live away from home, uh, or should they stay at the university cities over Christmas and not go back? And sort of there is sort of a uh, strange slogan where you know people should not be selfish. They should wear a mask. They should anti-social distance. Otherwise, they're going to kill their grandmother, kill granny. And uh, this has been in the news this week. And yeah, it, it's. I, I'm actually so bored of it because it's, it's just, you know, it's just gone too far. I mean, to me, if, if, as I said in, in the opening, you know, just before the first lockdown, the UK government actually said, well, we're going to stand down from this sort of dangerous alert situation because this COVID business is not a threat, and I think a week later, they locked down the country. So well, technically, it, it's, still not, it's still not even a threat in, in the governmental level. I don't know if that was changed in the re- more recent months, but it doesn't make any sense. Uh, we talked again and again about P- the uh, PCR tests. We talked about the numbers. There's been so many uh, people this week. Andrew Kaufman, for example, went through uh, on many occasions, and I one particular occasion, there's something in my links, where he's going through and discussing how these um you know these numbers that we all heard that you know 97 or 94 percent of the people who uh were seen to be you know infected with covid actually are not it's it's an error it's an error in statistics it's just basic maths a mathematical problem which they didn't even uh show properly so the media don't take it to pieces. They don't analyze it. They just, you know, take the, you know, the headlines and present them and look for the sort of, you know, the whoosh factor and, uh, move on to the next one. And it's, it's just.
5: Well, I, I this,
0: think it's this whole actually thing is
5: empty. Oh, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, Timothy. I, I, I was going to say, I think it's worse than that. I mean, I was, I don't listen. I don't have a television. I don't listen to stuff, but I do. I had the news on in the car on the way, um, to the store to get the cat food. And, you know, that short little window, the news, uh, what they call the news is their opinion or their interpretation of this. So instead of talking about uh, President Trump and what was really going on, they were talking about uh, how he should have been more responsible and he had every opportunity to wear a mask and he wouldn't have gotten it if if he had worn a mask. And I was infuriated with this because it's total you know, that that's their opinion. There's no basis for any of that. They don't know any of that, but they go around speaking as if it is factual. And most people, frankly, are too dumb to, to separate the truth from the lies or the opinion from the facts. And and this is I think what's going on. And it, it was it's I mean, I was, you know, gripping the steering wheel because but this just keeps going on and on. And and the fact is is that um you know there's all kinds of documentation here that we have uh this is a pandemic absolutely i mean i only put one item up because i thought it i, I thought it, this is to me the most important piece for me this week in my uh, fastlinks because it actually documents all of the planned out stuff coming from the people that are actually doing this including you know buying all these covid tests in 2018 2019 millions and millions of them bought by government for for something that supposedly didn't exist yet, following the money trails, you know, all the the things, all the bloopers where they accidentally said things. And I don't remember, maybe you guys can help me out, but I also heard, um, and this is something I, I don't have the documentation on right now, not to say that there isn't any, but, uh, that the lockdown was basically a, uh, a measure that they would take if we weren't complying well enough to just the threat of the virus. If the threat wasn't enough to keep us grounded and, and keep us restricted and, and kill the economy, then they would, uh, in, they would uh, have the lockdown. I, I don't remember where that, I heard that from though, I have to say.
1: And I've, I have that somewhere in my collection. I, it's not at my fingertips right now, but okay. also in that, I think same documents, this, um uh, experiment phase plan whatever you want to call it actually is supposed to go on until 2025 interestingly yeah. enough is that yeah. the same document you're referring to it
5: is, yeah I mean, because there's there's a lot of documents that do have the same timeline and the document that i'm talking about is actually all of these other documents inside of it it's uh, so um mm-hmm.
1: I think, I think it's from the World Bank or, or, or something similar. I, I I do have the documents. It might just take me a little bit of time mm-hmm. to dig through and mm-hmm. find the exact one.
5: But it was my understanding from, I, I think it was inside there when I was going through all of that, 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 yeah, the lockdown was kind of an afterthought if we didn't comply well enough, which apparently we did not. So then they did a lockdown, which would explain why, where they've gotten dropping numbers, the virus really isn't doing what you know they had hoped for maybe, uh, then all of a sudden they, they become more draconian in, in their control for something that isn't really even happening. It pretty well explained that, uh, but, you know, no one questioned it. Well, not no one. I, I did. I know we did. Uh, <laughs> but a lot of people did not question that. So
1: I'm just wondering, on, on your side, uh, have you heard any mention of hydroxychloroquine with, uh, in conjunction with President Trump? Because he was... I believe taking it, or said he was taking it for some time um maybe he continued, maybe he didn't, so it's very interesting that you know officially he has been marked as a covid nineteen positive person, and uh yeah I've, i i I've heard I don't no trust.
5: mention of it I don't trust mm-hmm. it as far as I could pick up and throw the whole batch of them
1: exactly
5: so, i mean I don't think any i mean i i'm sorry this is this is beyond the pale, so and I, and I actually discussed it with Conthea earlier in the day. I said, what do you think they're trying to do with this? And we were just throwing ideas back and forth because it's hard to say. I mean, this commentary which was extraordinarily biased that I heard on the, the radio uh, He, this one guy was saying, well, it really uh, Biden wants to ride the, uh, the COVID thing and he, he, all he has to do is sit back and let it take its toll because you know the the thing is you know not going to bode well for Trump who ignored it and now he has it and he actually said and he deserves it so it was pretty pretty blatantly biased um, and he uh,
0: deserves it excuse me he, did des- he, he d- say he deserves it he
5: said that exactly president trump deserves it that is what he said this was a wow. newscaster yeah so it was very very blatantly bias because it's a lot of that's a lot of opinion and a lot of hyperbole so you know that's not based in fact so I mean I I can say factually that's not based in fact so
3: so um, so this is Kinthea and I'd like to come in here now Sure, we have a very packed show and I'd like to bring our guests on um I'm going to bring on first Darlene Undy, who has been a previous guest. Just briefly, she's an activist. She's a dear friend who lives in Canada, and she's worked with Ted Kuntz on Vaccine Choice Canada, and also she's working currently with Action for Canada. Darlene, are you here?
6: I am, Cynthia, and. Hello, everyone, uh, to all you amazing uh, people that are assisting with what's happening in the world. And I I wanted to give um, basically a a shout out to this organization, which I've uh, been privy to have the privilege to be with these amazing people. And, And David Lindsay, who you'll also be hearing from, is also a part of this group in assisting them. But Action for Canada, so that's Action with the number four, Canada, is a grassroots movement reaching out to millions of Canadians and uniting our voices in opposition to the destructive policies tearing at the fabric of this nation. Through call to action campaigns, we equip citizens to take action and we are committed to protecting faith, family and freedom. Action for Canada's mission is to protect Canada's rich heritage which is founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, inherited through our British Commonwealth and embedded in the Magna Carta. It forms our laws and values and is a system of governance which sets us totalitarian, totalitarian, communist, and socialist regimes, giving Canadians the freedom to believe or not to believe without fear of persecution. And I wanted to also mention uh, Tanya Gaw, who is the founder of Action for Canada. I haven't had the privilege uh, at this moment to meet her in person, but um, I've I've met her obviously over the uh, social media platform. And I wanted to share what an incredible human becoming this, this lady is because she loves Canada. She loves our freedom and democracy. And when she is called to defend those who cannot defend themselves, she chooses to be the voice for the silent majority in order to educate, encourage and equip them and in doing so, change the conversation in politics. So currently, Action for Canada is commencing a fundraiser in order to take legal action against the BC government and I believe, Cynthia, that the uh, the link has been included for those to be donating to this important cause and uh, that's actionforcanada.com forward slash donate forward slash and I wanted to... Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share this valuable information
3: and I want to say it's action the number four Canada dot com so thank you Darlene uh, I, I love Darlene <laughs> I've known her for years, and she's just magnificent. so our guest tonight is uh, david lindsay and He's been involved in freedom issues for approximately 30 years. He began learning that income tax was unconstitutional, and shortly thereafter discovered the most important criminal activity in our society, usury. David learned about how the financial system truly works by creating money from nothing and demanding payment and compound interest, which, of course, is never created at source only the principle. David then started CLEAR, an acronym for the Common Law Education and Rights Initiative. As the name implies, the organization advocates for a correct understanding and application of the common law, which surprisingly to many comes from the Bible. Trial mentioned that last week. David has helped many in the court system and has been successful on a large number of criminal and civil cases. He remains active in these issues, climate change, fraud, and now the COVID-19 scam. He is an organizer of the weekly Kelowna rallies, an activist, truth seeker, and educator. Welcome, David. Welcome to the other side of the news.
7: Good evening. Thank you very much for having me.
3: It's wonderful to have you yes so i'm I would love to hear more about well first, how you got on this path, and what clear is
7: well, I got on about thirty years ago and it, it was kind of interesting on people often talk about you don 't know where the seeds are going to grow that you plant, and when i um when I grew up. Uh, I originally moved from Quebec and Canada over to uh, the prairies and I received a um, um, basically a brochure in the mail that went to every house in Canada. And in there was a, just a very short article dealing with the fact that income tax was unlawful in Canada. And my original thought was well, whoever wrote it has just got some serious psychological problems, but something kept that document in the house for about 3 weeks and I finally got around to to actually reading it and then I realized the guy lived in the city I was in in Winnipeg so my thoughts at the time were I'll go and talk to this guy if if the guy is uh, is off his rocker I just won't tell anybody I went to talk to him and um if he's got some valuable stuff to say then I then I would pursue it so I went there uh, I was impressed uh spent five hours they answered all my questions i picked up a copy of their books and from that point forward uh for about the first year my my, being a single guy at the time and making a fair amount of money my my whole concern was was money at the time i just thought great no more taxes. i can keep all this money and 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 enjoy life (laughs) but uh you know after a year that kind of changed and um the, the the intention and the motives change very, very rapidly. And I, I thank the people that taught me those values and morals right from the beginning, that, that you know money is not the issue. And that has stayed with me ever since. So I got involved and I realized right then there's only two options. Either I have to do the research or if the government comes after me, I have to depend on a lawyer. And even in my twenties, I knew how corrupt lawyers were and I said, that's not an option. So uh, being single, I literally spent thousands of hours in law libraries throughout the uh, throughout the country and doing my own research, understanding, and um, eventually I, I put it into practice by refusing to file income tax returns in Canada. And um, I have not filed an income tax return here since 1996. I suppose if I was to file, I would probably get money coming back. I, ha- I really haven't made a lot, but, um, and then my my next biggest revelation was about a year to a year and a half later when I, I, I made inquiries, if if people don't pay tax or don't pay their fair share, quote unquote, how is everything gonna get paid for? And that's when I got put onto the banking system. And once I realized taxes do not pay social programs, they do not pay anything for the most part other than interest to bankers. That solidified my view at that time that money was not the issue with respect to what I can keep. The issue was making sure these bankers don't take over our society. And um, I kind of progressed from there. Uh, I found out a whole raft of other issues and topics and rights deprivations and realized that through the money system, Uh, I mean, if you look at every problem in society, you can trace it back to the money system. And the analogy I use is people are putting out fires all over the place. They got a fire over here. They got a fire over here and a fire over there and they put it out. And then then there's another fire and they're going to keep putting out fires forever until they realize that they have a fire, a fire blower in the middle of everybody that keeps putting these fires out there. And until they get that fire blower and put him out, they're going to keep putting out these fires forever, and that fire blower is the usury-based money system.
3: Wow, what a revelation, and what a journey. So I I understand you spent a long time studying law, and I saw in your bio that you've helped many in the court systems. Was that like a natural outflow? They saw what you were doing, and they asked for your help, or are you actually an attorney, or
7: how did no, it come about? No, I'm not a lawyer or attorney. Um, I've had, ironically, two lawyers and in, in Canada, a Crown prosecutor, offer, ironically, offer to hire me. And I've turned them down specifically because I, uh, I refuse to be involved in their system. But um, the benefit of that is I've been able to help a lot of people, a lot of friends throughout the country who share our values and beliefs for freedom and have been able to help a significant number of people over those years. Um, And the benefit is that when I'm in court, I can say and do whatever I want. Short of contempt of court proceedings, of course, but um, lawyers are, as officers of the court are are really constricted to what they can say and do in the courtroom and what arguments they can put forth. As as somebody that's not a lawyer, I can say and do whatever I want and I can put forth any arguments I want, um, and I have no fear.
3: David, um, we're coming up on a break, so if you could just hold that thought. Yep. Thank you. You're listening to David Lindsay. Our So tonight, I'll be back after the break.
1: The other side of the news is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight.
3: We investigate,
2: explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus...
3: To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary. Based
2: on well-verified references fetted through vigilance and discernment.
3: Our desire is to
2: awaken your imagination with questions.
1: Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new and things, asking questions,
2: getting compelling answers,
3: and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity.
1: We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear
2: insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news.
4: And the other side of the news can be heard here, on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, 2 hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it you your own peril. Hi, this is Ted Kunz from Vaccine Choice Canada. I just want to reach out and express my gratitude to other side of the news for all that you guys are doing to empower humanity and bring us to a higher state of consciousness. Uh, The time that we shared together was a real pleasure, rich conversation, and I know that all of you are uh, higher conscious beings who are uh, part of the solution. You guys are great.
3: So, welcome back to the other side of the news. To find the show page, please go to the other and you can click on the other side of the news link or find the show called Pirates of the Constitution. And the show is uh, our guest tonight is David Lindsay. and our co-hosts are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll and myself Kintia And we've also had Darlene on day on with us. And so, uh, David, you were just telling us about your court experience and how they wanted to hire you and you chose not to that actually gave you more freedom to represent yourself and other clients by not being an attorney. Uh, You want to share a little more about that?
7: Sure. Um, Most of my uh, early experiences were dealing with helping people oppose the income tax in Canada, either procedurally, substantively, or on technical grounds, whatever would allow them to win against the government and would be, of course, accepted by the courts, we, we would advance cases. Um, I've, I've helped probably half a dozen people, along with about 50 to 60, failing to file income tax charges to be successful. And um, it's a very rewarding experience to win when the cards are stacked against you, both in terms of how the legislation is worded and the attitude of the people that that you're involved with in the government who's only, you know, contrary to law, their only job is to convict. And um, it's, it's just when you know how evil these corrupt people are, it's very, very rewarding to be able to, to not only win against them, but it's rewarding to be able to help friends out who share the same beliefs because it empowers them. They look back and, and they go, oh, maybe you can win, and maybe I can stay involved on freedom issues, as opposed to somebody who might otherwise have taken the attitude, you just can't beat them and I'm not going to be involved, and you've lost a very valuable supporter that way. So it's been very, um, very positive in that way of being able to help a lot of people and of course then you get the the feedback effect where you help one person they tell another and, and pretty soon a lot of people begin to realize that uh either a you can win and if you don't win that it's still worth putting up an effort for to uh to oppose what uh, these corrupt governments are doing to us
3: well you know i I'm impressed by that, and I'm thinking about how you've extended it to not only protecting our personal rights, but going after the officials to make them accountable in exposing their criminal charges.
7: Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's a procedure I believe is available in all U.S. state um, criminal, because I think in the states you have your own, each state has their own criminal law, if I'm not mistaken. And in Canada, we have, um, we have our criminal law that applies nationally because when Canada was um, originally formed in 1867, the socialist people here wanted a strong federalist government. And they, uh, they ensured that the criminal law would, would apply across uh, all of Canada. But one of the things we, uh, we adopted from England was the ability for anyone to lay criminal charges it's um, a power very few people are aware of. A lot of people believe if the police don't want to lay a charge or if the government won't sanction it, they're out of luck. And what happened for, for me is 25 years ago, I met a couple of people who were in tax interpretations with the local Canadian government. Then it was called Revenue Canada, similar to the IRS in the States. Today it's called the Canada Revenue Agency they uncovered a multi-billion dollar fraud involving the Canada Revenue Agency and a a private group out in the Maritimes run by the Bronfmans who are billionaires unto themselves. And what they would do is they set up a company that they would go in and they would audit other companies to find monies that were paid for, for say sales tax on non-taxable items, and they would split that with the government and, or the corporations 50-50. That money is supposed to go back to the crown and eventually the people if it's, if it's paid on a non-taxable item. And they were collecting billions of dollars every year. And to get an idea of how vast that amount of money could be, just imagine, for example, in the United States, if a sales tax of, say, even 4% was imposed on, say, a pound of bacon over the entire country for one year, how much money that would work out to. And they would split that money. And my friends went and tried laying criminal charges against these people for what they were doing. And then they found out how the courts at the initial stages were trying to shut it down. And that's when I got involved and tried to help. And I I got some internal documents where they were uh, the court judges were trying to shut this down. Once I got those documents, the, their attitude changed a little bit. And from there, I, uh, I did my own research on how criminal charges, to lay criminal charges works and started to empower people in Canada to, to lay their own charges. And the procedure for which that works as well, and through my experience, to show them what tricks to watch out for. If the government or the judges try to try some trickery or anything, like say you're charging a very high-profile politician, these are the tricks to watch out for, and what they may do and how you can respond to them. So, we've uh, we've tried teaching some people, and um, I definitely look forward over the next probably the next year or two uh, with the COVID issue. To obtaining a lot of information that people can lay charges with against our own government officials in Canada who, not dissimilar to the States, have falsified statistics and various other things to support their unlawful and unconstitutional lockdown measures here in Canada.
3: So, David, in uh in relation to teaching, I notice you have a book and a DVD series. Is that what, what this is about? And if so, you want to share with our audience what what you offer to help them through such a maze?
7: Sure. The the book itself is the annotated criminal charging procedure in Canada. And that is the book that I wrote. And it's to my knowledge the only book in Canada that specifically and exclusively deals with the entire procedure of how to lay criminal charges in Canada by by non-government officials. And that that was the whole purpose of the book, to empower people to lay charges how the procedure works. And most importantly, by the the name of the word annotated means it's supported by case law. So in other words, somebody doesn't look and say, well, Dave, you're not a lawyer. I don't need to be. Here is the case law that supports what I'm saying and how the judges and the courts have upheld it over the years. And we've got over 130 different case law from all over the country and from the Supreme Court of Canada all the way down. And we use that to support our position. And what else we've done is uh, because anybody in Canada may want to lay charges and every province has a different method, we've included the forms for every province. So anybody in Canada who gets this will be able to say, oh, here's my province. This is the procedure here to do it. And they can go and lay their charges in that province as well. And um, it's a very, very empowering book. Several lawyers have already commented that um, it's definitely um, of legal quality. That, that can be relied upon not only by the average person, but even by the legal community.
3: So would you say that these practices could also parallel with the American courts? Because I'm thinking about our 911 attorneys and whether there are some tidbits in there that would even be useful to them. I mean, is, is the are the law systems similar or very vastly different?
7: What I found is that The fundamentals of law are are pretty much similar. Um, Your constitution and your bill of rights specifically didn't just come out of nowhere. You didn't have a bunch of people sitting around a boardroom table saying, what are we going to include in here? They drew drew their inspiration from the English common law and the principles that that had developed over the centuries through, through that history. And that's what they used as a foundation. For your constitution down there as well, and as I said, my understanding is each state has its own criminal procedure. But the fundamental of the English common law is everybody, everybody had a duty to bring offenders to justice, whether initially it was through the hue and cry, somebody would see an, uh, an offense and would scream out, and everybody would run after the guy, or even at that time laying your own charges, which was bringing a charge to the um, to the attention of the king. For justice to be done so in the states um, although i have not researched the the procedures for each individual state i i rest pretty confident in saying that if um, considering they've adopted the common law of england through your justice system as well there would be provisions in each state for an individual to go and lay their own criminal charges against anybody who's broken the law and the only qualification would be that they would have to have some evidence on um, on each element of the offense, and once you have that, you would you should be able to get a summons or or warrant issued for their uh, for their arrest or to bring them to court.
5: So I I'd, I'd like to speak up. This is Anetta. Um, hi. Hi. So you're you're talking about a subject that is super near and dear to me. Um, I have been studying this, and, and I'm in the States, uh, so I can, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, and my, It's interesting because my original uh, entrance to this topic came in, in a similar way. I actually had figured out what the banksters were doing, and I uh, was, was sending out emails about, I think it was about 15 years ago is when I started with this, maybe a little longer when I think about 2004 okay so close um anyway uh so when you're talking about the the uh state uh courts or your provincial courts um and you're talking about laying charges we have a similar system in the states um and We also have, I I believe, I I do not know on the tax structure for Canada, but we have state taxes and then we have federal taxes. Do you have a similar circumstance there?
7: Yes, we do. We have uh, provincial, um, and of course there's direct and indirect, indirect being your sales taxes, customs, and so on, and direct Mm -hmm. being the most obvious is is your income tax. And the provinces have them up here. And the federal government brought them in, in unconstitutionally during the war, of course, and um, have never relinquished that unlawful power since.
5: Right. Okay. So it's very similar here. So we have that. And then, um, yes, it is brought on a state level. And so all of our states have constitutions. And then we also have the, the federal constitution. So we have this kind of a very similar setup. And I believe it's similar in Canada that when uh, you go to the state Supreme Court, the appellate is federal court system. Is that, is that also the case that you have?
7: Uh, no. In Canada, they've got two parallel court systems. One is for the province where you have your initiating court where all the criminal charges, most of the criminal charges are dealt with. Okay. And they're generally called provincial courts. Then you have your Court of Queen's Bench or some provinces Supreme Court where all your civil matters are dealt with indictable like murders and those serious charges and then you have a court of appeal and parallel to that you've got a federal system that has the federal court and federal court of appeal and tax court they'll deal with obviously tax issues and they will deal with all or most anyway federal matters okay that's against federal government
5: so we're a little different here okay well, anyway, um, yeah. So, the, but the money situation. So, back to the money situation that got you started. That's what I got started on. Um, and the taxes. Yeah. So I figured out that um, first of all, the the currency and and how money was being created out of thin air and um, using fractal creation and and all of that and how none of it actually in the taxes, none of it was actually going to any of the things that they told us that uh, you could stop paying your taxes and it would do absolutely nothing to to that situation. So um, where was I going with this? I kind of lost my train of thought, except that it was really cool that you start out the same way. <laughs> and <laughs> um, I wanted to kind of go a little bit into the idea of uh, the, the common law. Um, last week, we had a guest um, and, and she was uh, saying the, the, the Bible was uh, basically an encoded um, manual. To, uh, to understand the, the, the law system. And um, so I have a little bit different take on um, the thing with common law because I'm also have been very involved in equitable, you know, getting the law back on the land instead of an admiralty. Do you, what's your feeling on that and, and where, where have you worked with this or are you strictly staying in common law?
7: Our objective from the beginning, um, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. The common law was originally always the the original system of law, which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time, was extremely strict, very yes. harsh, <laughs> and most people failed to to realize the uh, the strictness. For and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a, a dotting an i, you the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed? was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king, I should say, or queen would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said too bad, you're you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. Mm -hmm. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of Chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity. I think there's 12 or 13 of them now um, that developed over the years where it basically was a a separate form of of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. Mm-hmm. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail.
5: It was a conflict in variance
7: in law. Yes.
5: And that was actually in this country. And I think it was very similar in Canada. It was March 9th, 1933. That basically that's where all of that, the merging, um, the, the the proclamations the proclamation 2040 was was passed and then that led to all of the the merging of the courts so and I think it's very similar in Canada same timing
7: our our courts were fused back in the 19 early 1910 1900 oh. to about 1920 they started getting fused in Canada
5: okay that was before hmm.
7: yeah okay. all yeah.
5: right right so um, so you're still so you don't really work in equity with what you're doing with laying these charges against the criminal the criminal charging procedure. Are you purely using the common law system?
7: Well, the equ- equity never dealt really with common with criminal charges. That never. was always common law. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the common law procedures and principles were eventually um, encoded into the Criminal Code of Canada and and so on, and various. Because uh, the differences in, in power, um, the criminal code would set out the law and procedures and the provincial courts, of course, would carry mm-hmm. them out. So when it comes to the laying of criminal charges, it's virtually all common law. There really isn't any equity involved.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: And the equity is more into the civil context, contractual issues, and uh, and so on. And um, they're basically personal, interpersonal relationships.
5: Okay. So I'm, I'm not sure if Timothy wants to say anything. I, I can keep going, but um, want to give
1: you a I, I I wouldn't mind just asking <laughs> something. Good Good morning. It's morning Hi. here where I am. Yeah, uh, evening. <laughs> thank you. I'm just curious to know about this uh, taxation point. It's something which which we did discuss a little bit on last week's show as well with uh, with our guest, and you know it's something which is, is fascinating to to many. And that is technically speaking, if if you can opt out of paying taxes and let's just say one person does that, then of course the country's gonna survive. If a hundred people do it, it's still gonna survive. But if everybody does it, then what scenario would you see occurring? Where would money where would the country gain the money from? Is this a myth that they require money from people, or is it is it created in such a way, like an illusionary way? Could mm. you could you tell me about a scenario where let's say in the future, everybody opts out of paying taxes legally, what would
7: happen? Well, essentially, taxes are the end result of interest in the money system. And it's no coincidence that the government brought in income tax in the war and then eventually made it uh, permanent in order to pay off the interest from, from what they were borrowing and so on. And if everybody was to stop paying there is a principle in the common law that Her Majesty is required, or the monarch, in this case is required, to provide the currency of the country. Now, whether it's a gold-based system or a fiat-based system has led to a lot of debate. I know um, myself, people like Bill Still down in the states who, who uh, is, is a supporter of the fiat system, if I remember correctly, and wrote he, he did a phenomenal um, three- hour DVD video on um, called the Money Masters. Absolutely, it, it's a must-watch for anybody on the money system. And um, if people were to stop paying their taxes, the government would have to issue the nation's monetary. So somebody's got to issue the money, right? It comes from somewhere. And if it's going to be a gold-based system, be a gold-based system. It has been for thousands of years, although. I think the the fiat system is a a bit of an improvement on it because you don't have to carry tons of uh, gold with you or anything else. And then eventually it may go to, to cryptos. But ultimately, I'm not so much concerned with the type of monetary system as I am with interest. If you have usury in your money system, it will collapse. Your country will collapse. And it's just a question of time. And when your country collapses, the people, the poorest, the middle class are not going to be the benefactors. It will be the, the wealthy who and the banks who will, you know, take control over everything. And I think that is going to be the the major problem with the um, with the banks. They're, they will lay a claim on everything. And there's a reason why every single religion in the world prohibits usury. And there's a reason for that. And historically, uh, it's been talked about, I, I don't need to go on for hours and labor the point, but um, it, it's been talked about throughout history as to the reasons why. And, and people are, I think, finally waking up to that fact Now the government is taking all their assets
1: and it's going it, to pay
7: bankers. Yes, go ahead.
1: David, I was just wondering, would you please define usury to me? It's not a term I'm really familiar with.
7: Sure. Yeah. Usury is, is basically the historical word for interest. Okay. And so, for example, if you want to get a loan for a car and you want $20,000, you go to the bank, you fill out the application form. That application form constitutes basically a promissory note that they record as an asset on their books. You're promising to pay them 20000 bucks if they will loan you the money plus interest. And then the bank, should they agree, creates that $20,000 out of nothing. It never existed prior to you going into the bank. And if you wanted to ask them whose bank account that money came from, they couldn't tell you. Because it never came out of anybody's bank account. And it's the same with governments. Um, The U.S. government, the feds up here in Canada, the provinces, municipal. When they want money, they issue bonds or treasury bills, which are promises to pay. And then the bankers, for the most part, they'll issue a billion dollars on the bond or whatever, and governments have to pay that money back plus interest. And the interest, of course, is never created. And ironically, I remember reading an article 10 years ago where um, it was stated that the Russian government just finished paying off its first – I'm sorry, its last World War I debt 10 years mm. ago. Incredible. And it's Incredible. And when I, when I heard that, my first thoughts are, where do we stand in Canada? So I started <clears throat> excuse me, phoning the Canadian government. And, when I, and I was asking them, what's the longest debt on our books? And uh, I got the runaround from one place to another, and the, the fear in their voices on the phone was incredible. They did not want to release that information. And eventually I found out, at minimum, the, the longest-standing debt in Canadian laws goes back to the early 1950s. All because wow. of interest, and it just keeps getting rolled over and rolled over, and mathematically, it can never get paid.
1: Well, the other day, we were discussing, I think it was in the background of another show, we we're talking about the national debt. Uh, I'm not familiar what it is in Canada at the moment, but I think in the United States, it's something in the region of, I'm going to round it up a little bit because we're a few weeks on, but it's something like $28 trillion or something on those lines. Wow. Um, I, I can check it in the break in a second, but let's just say it is 28 for the sake of argument for the moment. I mean, how, how would a country, even with so many people in the United States and such a large um, potential, how would it ever pay that back? That's a, a, a huge amount of money. And that's, that's it. So it's already beyond the point of no return. Is, is that
7: what we're saying? Absolutely. It's beyond the ability of the value of the goods and services probably for the next 50 to 100 years to produce. So even, even if they took 100% of everybody's labor today and 100% of your child's labor, you probably still couldn't pay that off.
1: So what the hell is going on at the moment where you know, my dollars are just being printed and you know, the national debt right. continues to go up and people are being selected, some are being helped and some are not? A lot of companies are going down uh, or being strangled, throttled, suffocated, and some are being held up. So what what do you see as the next sort of uh, what's around the corner?
7: I see, especially because of the COVID issue, but I see in British Columbia, we've had 14,000 bankruptcies since COVID started at the beginning of the year. And the majority of those are middle to lower uh, income businesses. So what I foresee ha- happening um, is a massive wealth redistribution from the middle to lower class to the people that own the massive big box stores and um, and the massive companies. They will come in and they will take over. Um, and and people can no longer shop at their little small stores. They will have to go to the bigger stores to get what they need. The rich will get richer, of course. Um and with COVID, what's happening is a lot of people are shopping online with Amazon and so on. So they're making phenomenally more money as well and, and concentrating their level of wealth. And, uh, and that, that's where I see it going, a, a real, real massive wealth shift.
4: in the navigator bar, or in the left-hand column. Membership costs 19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives, if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out.
5: Welcome back to the second hour of our show this evening, and we have David Lindsay uh, as our guest, and I am fascinated with the topic we're talking about tonight. This is Aneta, and I am co-hosting the show with Timothy Saunders and Kinthia, and uh, we're having a discussion about um, the creation of money, uh, how much debt we have, what happens, and um, I, which is fascinating, but I also want to get to a, another little part. Uh, David has written a book. His first book, in fact, was was rights denied, and, and it was the the nature on the nature of our constitutional right to the free use of public highways, which. May or may not sound interesting, but it, it's actually the basis for a lot of things and uh, how our laws work and what's working investment work. Um, I could have gotten into the whole thing of, of all the bonds. We were talking about bonds, and every time you get a ticket, they're writing a bond and you're signing it. Most people don't know that's generating money. But anyway, um, I wanted to talk about, about that uh, and the constitutionality of what is currently going on, because I am – uh, working on some stuff this weekend. I'm going to be flying on Monday and I'm very uh, nervous, anxious about this. And I'm working on some notice of liability. Uh, I wanted to get David's view on that whole thing, what we what we our rights, our constitutional rights with what we can do right now.
7: Well, there's a lot of things that can be done and with what's going on with COVID right now, Unfortunately, a lot of it depends on cooperative work. Um, Going in at an individual level is problematic. I tried to fly about a month ago, and at that time they were saying the issue about wearing a mask on the airplane was mandatory, but if you said you had a health problem, they would let you on without a doctor's note. And they didn't have to tell you about, or you didn't have to tell them about your health problems because of the uh, privacy element involved. Three days before I got on the flight, it wasn't even posted on the government website. Mark Garneau, who is the minister involved in, uh, in Canada, changed the law by a simple order. And he said they weren't going to do that anymore. They, now they needed a doctor's note. So I got to the airport. They wouldn't let me on the flight. And choices had to get made. And I said, listen, morals and ethics are important. What I'm standing on is more important. I'm not flying and I'm not putting a mask on. Mm. And the airplane refused to refund the money, which subsequently got lost. And um, it it was a difficult choice to make only because uh, I had family at home that had just gone through surgery and I wanted to see them and so on. But ultimately, uh, it was a decision that, in my opinion, was the right decision to make. Uh, If more, more people did that. And I I suppose this goes back to what a friend of mine told me years ago, he said, the problem is, people in North America have not suffered enough. Mm. And uh, to that I add, people, if they want freedom, freedom is a multi generational struggle, there's always somebody trying to take it away. And as a result, it's a legacy you leave for your children, as to what you're going to do. So People need to be prepared more than anything to sacrifice. They have to sacrifice. And if they're not prepared to sacrifice, then what's going to happen is exactly what has happened now. Why do your children have less rights and freedoms than you had? And why do you have less rights and freedoms than your parents did all the way back? And yet, at least in Canada, they try and say, well, we've got this this phenomenally great charter that came out in 82 of rights and freedoms. And yet we've got less rights and freedoms under it than we had before. Right, right.
5: So yeah, I, I um, you know, I was talking. Uh, I've been talking about this today to several different people, but you know, uh, was it Belarus. Yeah, the, the president of Belarus um, refused to go into lockdown, and the the World Bank offered all kinds of, he said, we'll, we'll give you this loan. Of course, you're going to pay interest on it. So when you go into lockdown, and it creates this uh, havoc to your, you know, your economy. Uh, then this loan will help rebuild your country and blah, blah, blah. blah. And the president, I think I'm just shortening the story here. I said, uh, well, um, you know, if I don't go into lockdown, I won't destroy the economy. Thank you. No, thank you. Right. But in the situation with things like airlines, we have a a country that uh, did do this and the airlines did and are still suffering massively and are forced to uh, take these incentives and these loans in in order to stay afloat. And then they are used as the uh, enforcing agents for the policies of a government which they most likely don't agree with. And the reason I say that is because, for example, I've taken it right down to the mom and pop restaurants, you know, that are, are the grocery stores, everybody who's having to enforce these these mandates that aren't even lawful. Um, and, you know, they're now we're all policing each other, which is really wonderful fascism, just great. So, um, is there i mean i I do all I can, and I know a lot of our listeners do what we can i'm I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. I have uh, two ill family members that's which is why I'm flying um, and uh, you know, and I have not flown since this started because of it i I would have several times by now, but I haven't. And I am very angry about having to have a mask on my face for 12 hours, which is, you know, a flight that used to take four and a half hours is now taking 12. Um, is there, you know, what what can we do on an individual basis and or which, or on a group basis, which which is bringing these people to justice in the court system, which I'm very interested in. So, um uh, you address yeah. that?
7: Yeah, I'll I'll address your points in in order. There, um, the, it's interesting about the uh, the bribery scandal because when countries join organizations such as the UN and the WHO, what happens is that you cede part of your sovereignty to these organizations. Yes, and most people in the country think, well, we're joining together to work together, and and all the other myths that go out there, but that's not the case. And people don't realize you're giving up your sovereignty to these international bodies. And if they make a joint decision that is against your nation's best interest, you're out of luck. So I'm glad he stood up to them um, because it it eventually goes back to the protection versus subjection principle. And if if, uh, you want protection, they'll give you the money, but you're subject to whatever they tell you to do, which invariably is people losing their rights and freedoms. And your point on the, uh, the airlines and businesses is extremely well taken. I have mentioned up here, and I've talked to them for, for a while now up here, that the governments are using businesses as their proxies to do what they can't do directly on a constitutional basis. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly what they're doing, and they're they're using them because they're saying, well, it's private business, private uh, property, and we, we don't control that, that's not our area. So, they're, uh, the, the businesses, especially the major businesses who get massive tax breaks and, and government subsidies and support, and whose top people are well connected into the higher echelons of power, they're more than happy to comply to keep their status. And, um, and they are. They're, they're using these businesses as proxies and employees who simply don't want to lose their jobs and, and so on. It's a very um, frightening situation. A friend of mine here um, up in Ottawa years ago fought the tax system on the basis of slavery and he said, uh, I'm not collecting your taxes because you don't pay me to do it and that's slavery. And I submit on a similar basis that businesses should take the same attitude. Why should we force our employees to wear masks or do anything and incur costs on your basis um, when we're not getting paid to do it?
5: That's absolutely true. And so, yeah, and I, and I, you know, I'm not in a position where I have one of those situations because I would definitely be doing this. And I can say that, and maybe it's easy for me to say that because I don't have a business that I'm losing. I don't think so. I, I, I'm pretty adamant. But um, the thing is, is that these these people, no matter what their business is, let's say they're a restaurant, you know, we have a, a close, a close uh, basically family that has a restaurant here, Um they can't have, you know, they can't have anybody in their restaurant. They can only go to go and, you know, they're basically completely destroyed their businesses. We've been in lockdown in California for over six months. Um, you know, these people haven't been able to open their doors. And, uh, and, then, and then even when they're in there, uh, they're telling them that they have to wear a mask and blah, blah, blah. Even though there's no customers in there, you have to wear a mask, you have to do this, you have to do that. Or otherwise we come and take your license. And what I'm wanting to figure out is what can we do to help people to be able to push back against this? I mean, the slavery idea is one. What can we do um, that allows them to have some power against this complete draconian uh, authoritarian fascist moves that are being made on every business? I'm just using one example.
7: Yeah, the the unfortunate part with Corporate business is, of course, the nature of business itself fundamentally is a license to profit, and any registered corporation has to get the the fiat of the state in order to exist under their conditions they set out, and that that causes some fundamental problems in the nature of that relationship, as opposed to say Mom and John Doe, who simply are running a store; they're not registered, incorporated, or nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: And um, but with respect to your point about how do, we, uh, how do we oppose or, or you know, stand against the, the government and what they're doing? In my opinion, there is only one answer, and that's numbers. The individual, um, I, I go back to what Edgar Hoover said years ago. He said the individual is handicapped by coming face-to-face with a conspiracy so monstrous he cannot believe it exists. Mm. And, and that's the case for a lot of people. They, they come up to the, then there's massive people, the the police force and everything else. And they go, what do you want me to do? It's just me. And there's nobody there to support them. And it's, it starts on a small level. It has its way up by, by simply having a large number of people support them. And that support can take a variety of factors. If they're um, shut down, they start up the next day and they have two or 300 people standing there watching to help them. It could help financially. For example, if somebody needs uh, money, everybody donates say a hundred bucks and they're, they got 10 grand to get going on right away again. And people agree to shop at their stores and not wear masks. But you know, you, you really, I guess this goes back to the other thing with the masses. You couldn't have asked for a better Hollywood production on this. Um, they come up with uh, a virus whether it's uh, bioterrorism or or, uh, natural or whatever, is irrelevant. The virus came about. They have false models from Ferguson in uh, in England, professionally falsified models. Then the government's go ballistic. They shut everything down. Nobody can go anywhere or do anything except stay in the house and watch TV. Every minute you're hearing pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. All they talk about, the news, the commercials, everything is talking about this massive pandemic. People are, are absolutely shocked and in fear and can't believe anything else exists. And then, of course, they, they just believe everything the government is saying from that point forward. And trying to, trying to change that attitude to say, no, they're wrong. We need your help. It, it's a form of brainwashing in a way. How do you combat that? Because the businesses and the employees are self-centered, self-interested. The employee doesn't want to lose his job. The businesses, you know, want to make profit, don't go out of business. How do you get them to override their individual concerns and think more and say, listen, we have to work together, notwithstanding the supremacy of the common law of the individual and common law. If we don't work together and protect each other, There is no other way. The courts, um, I'll venture to say down there, but I can tell you, having been in court over 300 times in in every court in seven provinces in Canada, the courts are so corrupt. People, it, it just shocks their imagination. Trying to get relief in the court is problematic simply because of the political component, the patronage and so on that's involved. And these judges, they're appointed because they've been compromised. And those favors will get called in when necessary. So the chances of winning in the courts are really, really small on on issues of this magnitude. So the only real solution, unfortunately, is numbers. And then the question becomes, how do we get people working together? How do we get people to recognize that what they've been brainwashed with is wrong and to work together to oppose it in in large enough numbers? And that, that is a real problem that at this point... I simply, I just don't have an answer for.
5: Well, when I talk to individuals, whether it be a restaurant owner or you know just someone standing in line, what I find uh, is that a lot of the people. I mean, I I do run into those, you know, those ones that are having fear gasms all over me when I'm out walking around without a mask. But I found large numbers of people that are both business owners, etc. They don't believe this for a moment.
0: Mm-hmm. I you know
5: I, th- it's that they're com- they're compliant and and complacent because they don't want to rock the boat they don't want to do that and so but I think that the issue is uh, not even convincing them I, I I seriously question how many people actually really really believe this whole story at this point and I know there's people there they're glued to their televisions and they just can't see any other And they're completely brainwashed I get that there's plenty of those too but there's plenty of the other side we don't have is a lot of people that actually openly oppose it, that openly stand for something different. Um, yeah, which, you
7: know what? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go
5: ahead. ahead. That, I was just going to say which is where, where I am with it, but I, that, that I don't have a lot of people standing with me.
7: <laughs> well, this, this goes back to what, um, a comment that Alexander Haig made many years ago when people were protesting on taxes. He said, let them march in the streets all they want as long as they continue to pay their taxes. And from a governmental point of view, they don't care about anything other than you following orders and doing what you're told. And as much as rallies in the streets are important, um, especially peaceful ones, of course, and and so on, ultimately it comes down to individual – I hate the term, but I'll call it civil disobedience. Because in my opinion, it's actually civil obedience. We're the ones obeying the law and they're the ones taking it away. Blackstone was clear, and if you, I I think the principle, the law follows the flag. So when England came all over to North America, the Americans adopted the common law as well. And they adopted the same principle that if the government violates the very laws that they're sworn to uphold, you don't have to obey them. And is there risk? Absolutely there is. And people have to be prepared to take that risk progress because otherwise if if people aren't prepared to take risk the government will just walk all over them and take everything they have as is happening now so it's um i know a lot of people out there a lot of businesses especially that i've talked to here and so on i agree there's a lot of people who who are you know dave this thing is a fraud i've talked to doctors we don't believe it, what's going on why aren't you doing anything why aren't you talking publicly? Why aren't you going on the net? Why don't you in your business put a sign on your front door that says no masks allowed? And mm-hmm. you know, a poll here came out recently: 60% of businesses think they might be bankrupt by the end of the year. You want to go down fighting or do you want to go down begging? And uh, I'm trying to get uh hopefully get some people to say, listen, we don't have a choice. If if we don't get customers in, we're gonna go out of business anyway. Mm-hmm. So you, you might as well stand up for your employees, for your customers, for yourself, and and just tell the government, we're not complying with these orders. They're not supported. In fact, in the first place, um, any, any um, logit- logistical uh, crunching of the numbers will show that the, the coronavirus is just as bad as the uh, a flu. It's not much different. Um, trying to get people who know that there's a problem and refuse to do anything about it. Maybe it's one of those ones that you you need one person. And then one person says, Hey, look, here's here. You can come in. And then we set a date for a month from now when everybody does it all at once and just says, no, we're not going to do it. So they can't come after everybody at once. Right. It's a difficult, difficult question.
1: Well, that is, that is happening Dave Um, Mm -hmm. in Berlin in London and many other cities around the world that's happening on, on a, on a weekly basis, a uh, weekly basis now, not that you see it in mainstream media very much, but, uh, I mean, there were literally something in the region of 1.5 million plus people in Berlin a few weeks ago on the streets yeah. without masks. That's amazing. Yeah, and
5: they're, and they're planning another one. Oh, you know, the other thing I wanted to point out to, to people is that, you know, I, I talk to people and I say, you know, have you thought about why, people that are speaking on on a a legitimate speaking platform like a square and having a peaceful speech are being arrested. And yet, you know, these riotous uh, things that are happening and it's all destructive, they're they're being left alone. Don't you think there's some kind of other agenda happening here? I mean, I I ask people questions because it, it forces a thought. At least you hope it forces a thought. If you tell people stuff, they won't necessarily process but if you ask a question they actually have to think about it to give an answer so you know i I ask these things it's like why are we sitting still why are we why why are are peaceful people being prosecuted and and destructive people are not and all of these things you know but it's that unity thing uh we still aren't there and I, i i'm frustrated so i'm kind of frustrated and i i totally agree with you by the way about the court system Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, my personal experience. Yeah, it's a very corrupt system.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I, we're I uh, think we're at a point where I mean, I've, I've watched videos and I'm I'm just seeing people being you know there was there's a, a girl this week who was sort of basically mauled to the ground by a, a, a sort of a police type person. I'll say that very loosely in, in the United States. And uh, I think maybe many of you may have already seen this, but I mean, she was tased or threatened to be tased and basically dragged off because she was not wearing a mask in a, I think it was a football or sports arena. And uh, ultimately, the the guy who was arresting her for not wearing a mask uh, was also not wearing a mask as he left the scene. And, but the video camera that I saw, and that's just saying, let's assume that it is a legitimate, real, Video. It could also be like a you know a, a fake news twisted thing as well. Who knows? But let's just say it is, it is legitimate for, for the moment. Then you know people are just sitting around. They're sitting around and sort of like still with their legs crossed and sort of think, oh yeah, well you know this is, this is happening. And because they're motionless, because they don't want to get involved, they don't want the conflict, they don't want to get a fine, they don't want to get arrested. And this is this is kind of where we're coming to the point is. You know, are we prepared to do the walk and the talk? Because, frankly, you know, let's just say tomorrow is Saturday. Tomorrow is already today here. But if I go walking down a certain street and I'm not wearing a mask, that's not a big deal. But technically a policeman can stop me and say, where is your mask? And I'll say, well, I'm just uh, drinking a bottle of water or I'm eating a very long baguette or whatever it is I'm doing that, you know, means that I'm not wearing the mask on my face for such a long time um but technically they have the power allegedly to to arrest me or to fine me and fine me fines are getting more and more expensive by the week so this is the reason why people are not resisting is because they don't want to pay four thousand dollars or three thousand dollars or whatever the latest the latest fine is so i think that to move things along a little bit i think we need to find a way to uh, pull the foundations out of these fines. Are these fines legal? Are they are they in the best interest of the population? I mean, can can we undermine the the meaning behind these fines?
7: Well, I think a lot of the um, the fines themselves. To in order for the fines to be there, you have to go back to the legislation and the orders that authorize them. Fines don't don't just come out of nowhere. I think, and when you go back, for example, in British Columbia, um, the, the emergency acts and the health acts here in BC specifically state that if there's a, an emergency involving the public, and this goes back to um, your friend's question about asking questions, which I've, I've been actively promoting here for over six months now, think critically. And in order to think critically, you have to ask fundamental questions. So. When you look at the legislation, for example, in BC, and it says it affects the public, what is the public? And subsequently, on one of the orders, the health officer in BC admitted that private health care facilities, long-term health care facilities, hospitals, and a number of other places were not part of the public. And they were in the private domain. So when you take those out, And all the deaths that are associated with it, you find out in in a province of 5 million people, there's only about 50 deaths. So the facts don't exist to support the emergency lockdowns in the first place, which then impose the fines. Then somebody, and again, I can do it, I I have the knowledge, but the the question is the finances, Um, then somebody can challenge it in court and say, listen, this lockdown is completely factually un, unsupported. There is no emergency. Uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, the, uh, the PCR test with, uh, with Mullis, was, when he said it was completely not designed for this purpose, for diagnostic purposes. Um, and you can go through every aspect of it and show that there is no pandemic at all. Then the facts are taken away from them to support the orders. And then when the orders are gone, the fines are gone. Um, But to support, to to challenge the fines themselves, the only principle that I'm aware of that might work is called reasonableness. And it's a principle of common law that all laws have to be reasonable. If the laws are, for example, are grossly disproportionate to what they're trying to do or, uh, for example, if you get a parking ticket and you get a $20,000 fine, I don't care what your incentive is for the parking ticket, it's it's grossly disproportionate, for example. And there's a variety of other reasons why laws can be unreasonable and, and you can challenge fines on that basis as well. Um, before I forget, on on a note about your friend who's going to be traveling on the uh, air, I remember a friend of mine told me um, – recently that one of the exceptions for traveling on flights that you don't need a mask is when you're eating so what he did is he brought his massive bag of chips (laughs) and just ate one chip slowly after another that's my plan
8: (laughs) (laughs) hey
5: um dave we're 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 coming right up on a break i don't you know so we need to like wrap it up here in about 30 seconds but um yeah that's my plan eat drink and be merry Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah i i want to come back to the idea of going after these uh this health commissioners et cetera as criminals when we come back but we're ready to take us out right about now
0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
3: topics and events through the lens of hyper-dimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research, real data real
0: science
7: the other side of midnight.com hi this is Damagord from lightonconspiracies.com you know over the years i've done some
1: 500 to 1000 international interviews and i just want to say the other side of the news is one of my favorite shows so enjoy <laughs>
3: Welcome to the other side of the news. Welcome back. Our guest tonight is David Lindsay. And the show is called Pirates of the Constitution. Co-hosts are Annette Driscoll, Timothy Saunders, and myself, Kinzia. And I want to mention that uh, in about 15 minutes or so, we will be taking calls. So if you are calling, if you're an international caller, you will want to dial 1. And the number is 917 917- Eight eight nine eight eight zero two. So that's one nine one seven eight eight nine eight eight zero two. And when you come on, make sure you don't have a radio or something else that's tracking the show because it will make a terrible feedback. So welcome back, and uh, David and Annetta, You were just making a point there. I turn it back to you
5: so yeah so david i wanted to talk again about um the the possibility of us being able to bring these criminals to to trial i mean they 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 know that they're engaging in criminal activity they know this is falsifying information there's no real emergency is there anything that can be done and if
7: so what would it be Well, the first thing with laying any criminal charge and bringing them to to justice on a criminal basis is to make sure you have enough evidence to, um, well, in Canada, what we have to do here is go through an initial hearing and the judge looks at it and says, do you have enough evidence to to take it to trial? And the test is a very low one. As long as you've got something to back it up, it will go to uh, a trial. And... There's various ways of getting that evidence in Canada. I'm not sure in the States or California how it is, but you you have access to to information legislation that allows you to ask for their emails or correspondence, their documents, uh, attachments, text, anything virtually that they have that you can maybe use against them once you get it. But ultimately, in order to bring them to justice, notwithstanding we know what they're doing is, is wrong, unlawful, unconstitutional, and so on, it comes down to being able to prove it. And to do that, you, you need evidence, either witnesses, documents, um, somebody that's going to take the witness stand, right? So it's something that you have to prepare for. Um, and maybe even a couple months in advance, some of the people, uh, for example, on your on a website, what they could do is just have, similar to what Julian Assange was doing, you just have a site that says, hey, if you've got documents you want to anonymously put out to support a prosecution against governor bill doe uh send them here and then you you get them you verify them and and away you go so criminal charges are are definitely an option um civilly however there's stuff like injunctive relief um Mm -hmm. if if you can provide evidence again it's all evidence-based but if you can provide evidence that there is no pandemic Maybe you can get an injunction stopping them from what they're doing in whole or in part. For example, on the mask issue, once you can go to court and show that masks don't work, and here's the evidence. I know um, Ms. Tenpenny, Dr. Tenpenny in the States, uh, Dr. Mikovits, Dr. Bukhar, and many others have significant body of evidence and studies to show masks um, not only don't work, but they're dangerous. And if you were to be able to get affidavits from them, and go into court and, and say look the law is not reasonable because they don't work and they actually are harming the very or harming the very people you're entrusted to protect you should be able to get an injunction stopping the government from imposing any sort of mandatory mask law even a suggestive one because unfortunately people do look to to governments for guidance and a mere suggestion by the government could have persuasive compelling um Uh, authority upon them similar to a statute simply because people don't know the difference between a suggestion and an order for example so that that's an option simply is to to get an injunction to stop them from what they're doing the important part as i said it has to be evidence You, you need something to back it up it can't be hearsay so you would need some some funding you get four or five doctors to go in with 30 or 40 studies and you go listen here you go man And you get people who have had to wear masks all day and say, listen, I've worn this mask eight hours all day today. I can barely breathe. It's causing me uh, problems. Here's the mask. Here's what it looks like. It's covered in sweat. It's covered in um, uh, saliva. It's covered in germs and and so on. And you show that it's a danger. You should be able to get an injunction immediately stopping mandatory mask wearing. Okay. David, Annette, may I
1: just jump in very quickly? One of the points that I don't wish ill on, on anybody, but if we are all wearing, I say we, I'm not wearing a mask, but if many people are wearing a mask uh, and they are as harmful as you know, they've been pointed out by certain doctors like you, you just outlined, then presumably in the, in the not too distant future, then people will show some symptoms or some negative effects from wearing these masks. So that in itself will be evidence Unless of course it's covered up or done by the same people with the sort of you know dodgy fingers that did the, the, the uh, RT-PCR test in the first place, but that will be a body of evidence, I guess. People who have breathing problems, respiratory problems, who knows, new allergies in the future. I'm, I don't, I have no scientific basis to jump at these conclusions, but there'll be something, I would imagine. Would be in in you know in retaliation to I say retaliation as a knock on effect to wearing these masks. So that yeah, would be some form of evidence, I guess.
7: I agree. But, Anybody, for example, who has COPD, they mm-hmm. could do an affidavit that says, "Listen, here's my medical doctor's reports. I have COPD. I can barely breathe as it is at times. Putting a mask on takes away X amount of oxygen, and it exacerbates my." Uh, my health problems significantly and as a result i physically cannot comply with the law and the law of necessity also under common law there's also the law of necessity if if you can't wear them due to serious health problems the law of necessity to protect your health and your life will kick in immediately
1: well i would imagine that the i call them a the minority whoever's actually calling the shots here but i think it's somebody sitting in the background above who and united nations but isn't there a isn't there a huge question of liability as well? If these people are going to be sick in the future from wearing these these uh, ridiculous masks, then will they not be suing the government for offering this advice?
7: Well, number one, I I, I agree. They are the minority. We are the 99 percent, right? And I fully agree with you on that. And as for suing them. Yes. However, it's important to remember In in, at one point, I used to say socialist states like Canada, I'm on the verge of saying they're just communist up here now, but the B.C. government recently passed a law whereby they had to give an an order every 14 days for, for their emergencies. So they passed a statute saying, no, it's going to be here for at least one or two years. We don't want to do this every 14 days. So we're going to pass a law and we can have any time limit we want and they also included a provision in there that nobody can sue anybody in the government anybody acting under their authority police employers employees um nobody can sue any of them for any damages health problems that develop as a result of them enforcing the orders that that the health officers are so in effect they've taken away your right up here in canada to, to sue them for damages I suspect if that was constitutionally challenged, as Tanya Ga is going to be doing shortly, that will not survive the light of day.
1: Mm. I mean, but, that sounds like the, the lawmakers have just been playing a lot of monopoly during the time period. It's, it's like a get out of jail free card, isn't it?
7: Well, for them it is, and they know what they've done is wrong. And now that it's uh, it's coming public, they're going, man, we don't want to be held accountable for this. What's the best way to do it? Pass a law, nobody's accountable, and. You know, I, I think Tanya will win on her case. She's she's uh, getting uh, one of the top constitutional experts in uh, Canada to do it for her. And I think she's gonna be eventually successful. The problem is the time component. And the um the temporal issue is gonna be is gonna be critical because by the time they get to court, who knows what'll happen. It'll be next year and uh the courts in Canada are extremely slow. Um and monotonous it's it's really bad and i think one of the other components on mask issues that nobody's really dealt with yet is the the component of both your constitutional right in the states to freedom of speech and ours in canada because with these masks on especially if they have plexiglass component plexiglass um, shield in front of them and so on you can't hear anybody speak and it it virtually in many cases it does stop freedom of speech
1: Mm, interesting
7: and and uh, i yeah.
5: it's gone. Yeah. I was going to say and there is the the uh the maxims in equity that says uh, our property one, we have property and one of the properties is our right to breathe literally. It is it is part of our law system. <laughs> and people don't know that but the the right to feel, to see, to breathe is And we own our bodies, we own our labor. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is all, this is all uh, part of the law. And I I really wanted to clarify for our listeners. So we, you know, it's, it's, people say it's the law, it's the law. There's a big difference between mandates, statutes, uh, law that has gone through the legislative process, uh, organic law that it's based on that would be like our constitution and stuff. Could you, could you address that a little and just kind of give an overview because there's a lot of confusion Uh around
7: that? Yeah, I go through um, virtually all of that in, in our DVD series that you have here, which is called Freedom is the Denial of Personhood, which is equally applicable in the States because your laws are based on persons, the status down there as well. But um, it, fundamentally, when you ask somebody, what is the law, you either get silence or they go, well, the government said this or said that. I've always been a big proponent of getting to to a fundamental level that things cannot be broken down anymore. So when you ask what a law is, a law is a command to do something or not to do something. Then the questions arise, as we talked about earlier, thinking critically. Who gave the command? Where did their powers come from to issue those commands? Did those commands comply with their authority? And you could go on for questions that go to, to that basis. And then you get to the issue about can they use their commands to take away your right to breathe and, and other components, which are not only part of the natural law, they're also part of our common law. And if you look back historically in the Bible, I mean, God gave you the power to breathe for obvious reasons to eat and, and so on. And these uh, property rights are extremely fundamental and they cannot be taken away or restricted Um, any more than taking away water can be you can't restrict somebody's water intake they'll die and breathing is no different in fact breathing I would say is even more serious because if you go out without breath or take away even a little bit of it for more than a few minutes you will die as well water you can live a couple days but air you'll go a few minutes and and you'll be dead so I, I mean each country has its own constitution and the states, fortunately, is also, you inherited, and in my opinion, expanded upon the common law of England in a very, very good way. Your constitution, in a lot of ways, is phenomenally stronger than ours, uh, at least insofar as our charter goes. But um, when you talk about organic law, in, in our system of law in Canada, which goes back to the monarch, it goes, the, the monarch has, like, how do I put this, you can't just come in and tell somebody what to do because that's a violation of their liberty. So in order for anybody, whether it's a government or a monarch, to tell you what to do, you have to authorize it. And in our system of law, that authorization is in the coronation oath of the monarch. They agree, the monarch agrees to protect us in our property rights, to uphold the laws of God, and we agree to be subject to her laws as long as they don't violate her her promises to us. And if she gives royal assent to a law that violates those promises, we can, we can say, no, we're not going to comply with it. And that organic law, of course, I'm going to assume organic law is natural law, which would be, many people would say is the same as biblical law, but ultimately um, if, if legislation violates your fundamental rights, the right to live, the right to breathe, the law of necessity kicks in, which is a common law principle and um and you can rely on that specifically to say i'm not complying with your order to put a mask on because you're putting my health and my my liberty well, and liberty but you're putting my health at risk serious risk and the organic law the fundamental law of your country and ours is the common law which goes back to to biblical principles
1: david and it's measures just ask a question one of the things that uh again, when we were researching before the beginning of this show, is that we understood that there are a number of people, ministers in the government in Canada, actually leaving. They're sort of forming like a, a pattern. Could you explain a little bit what's happening there? That also is reflected in our show title this evening, like the Pirates, the Constitution, like pirates leaving a ship. But it, what's happening there?
7: BC has just called an election. And it was interesting because the leader of our government here, entered into an agreement with the opposing parties that he would not call an election till next year because he has a minority government here. They don't have more than 50% of the votes.
1: Is this and, Trudeau? Or no,
7: is this, this, this like, is Premier Horgan for British Columbia. Okay. And um, anyway, he, he violated that oath and has called an election. And I think seven ministers of his government have have now resigned And I don't think they want to face the electorate coming up in in British Columbia. They simply don't want to face what he has done. So they've resigned. And and that's absolutely amazing. That's probably about 30%, 25% of the entire party has just abdicated and said, we're quitting. We don't want to be a part of (laughs) this anymore. That's a huge amount, especially all at once. And on a federal basis, they have to call an election by next year. And that is going to be um, really interesting because Trudeau is really, really hated here in Canada. His dad was hated back in the 70s, who was a major, major proponent of communism. He he loved China, he loved Cuba. And uh, his son Trudeau, Justin, right now, is also a major supporter of uh, of China and of uh, of Cuba and communism as a whole. So he's, he's really hated by a lot of people in Canada. And I suspect when the election time comes next year, he's going to have significant problems on his hands, real, real problems, because people just don't, they don't want him again. Hopefully the party members that are, um, that are resigning here in British Columbia, who are also a socialist party, um, hopefully they get back in with a minority, anybody with a minority, because once you have somebody in power who controls all the strings, they do whatever they want for four or five years, and, uh, and you can't do anything about it.
3: David, this is Kynthia here, and I'm just so Hi. curious. If, if Trudeau is so hated, how did how did he get elected if his father was so hated? I don't understand. What were the Canadians thinking?
7: Well, you really want to know? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you what the media promoted. They promoted his good looks. He had wonderful hair. He was really good-looking. And the media, would, they promoted that and promoted it and promoted it. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people who voted for him because they thought he was good-looking. Oh, my. I'm not kidding you.
5: <laughs> well, you can't really say much because that's the same situation we have here in, in California with, uh, you know, our tyrant-in-chief who mm-hmm. believes he's, you know, believes he's ruling the people. He's not governing you know the same problem he was i he was the mayor of san francisco and mm-hmm. then he now he's the governor of california and it's the same deal he's totally not qualified but he's nice looking
7: <laughs> well i know trudeau um is getting more and more hated but somebody once pointed out that the canadian prime minister is the next closest thing you can have to a dictator his powers need to be restricted because he can do virtually anything. He can issue orders in council and um, it's the amount of powers that he has uh, need to be, and not just him, but the office itself need to be constrained because they're especially him. He's just abusing them totally. But
3: Do you see an opening for the Canadians to do that, to change that?
7: Next year. You mean like they could actually restrain the, the powers? Yeah, what will have to happen is um, you need to get somebody into office who cannot be bought or sold or compromised. Once they're in, they can raise these issues in, in Parliament, for example, that no other MP will raise. And, uh, you know, once you're part of a party, you don't want to do anything because the leader will kick you out and loss of status and, and so on. But if you get an independent in there, he can raise these issues with the government in Parliament unrestricted. And say whatever they want and get it on the record. And I suspect that's when when change will happen and um things will will take place. But somebody's got to get into office so that the media cannot fully control the narrative. Well, do you see David, I mean, on the this
3: horizon who would qualify?
7: I'm sorry, you, you got cut off.
3: I said, do you see anyone on the horizon who would qualify?
7: You're talking to him.
0: <laughs>
7: Yay! What what I've decided to do for the next year's election is set up, uh, it's called the Canadian Assembly of Independence, and it's a group of independents who are committed to voter initiative, referendum, and recall, and who are based on our common law, the history of our law, the fundamental nature, and taking away these powers that government has to to summarize it. And we want to run as independents, so our, our primary loyalty is to the people, and then we run as a, as a group of people with all these shared values and beliefs. So we're not part of a party. I can't vote somebody out or tell somebody that, you know, you have to leave the party. Their only liability is to the electorate and that's it. Mm. That's what we want to get in next year is we want to change the viewpoint of Canadians from thinking you have to have parties in power to realizing you need to have independence in power.
3: Oh, I hope you succeed. We need that here. We definitely need that here.
7: Yeah, it's a, it's a problem maybe where you have a party system, whether it's two parties or five parties is irrelevant. If you have a party system, you've got a problem.
3: Well, then also, you know, if you're not a multimillionaire billionaire, you can't run. So I'd like to see people, you know, who are sincere and genuine being able to run independent of what their bank account is.
7: Yeah, that's a, that's a real problem. I agree. And um, the one element that could help on that is time Um, in the sense that if you know an election is going to be called next year, you can spread it out over the course of a year of meeting people and trying to raise funds and talk to people. But like here in British Columbia, the the Premier here called an election on, on one or two days notice. People like me who are going to run independently uh, we don't have the ability to raise the the necessary funds and get out there and talk to people uh, within within your community in a space of twenty or thirty days. It's just not possible.
3: Hey, I think Timothy had a question. Did were you were going to say something, Timothy?
7: It,
1: it's kind of past now, so oh, I think sorry. it's better to go onwards and upwards. But um, okay. I was just really curious to know about the the constitution again. I mean, we've been talking about yeah. it, but. Uh, I, if I understand correctly the Canadian constitution is written but it's not been ratified so as a new member of the government in the future I hope David would you uh-huh. do something about ratifying that constitution or changing amending it or what our, needs our con- to be done there
7: yeah our, um, our constitution is partly written partly unwritten which we've got from England <clears throat> and mm. there's got benefits to it and some detractions but The original constitutional document was the oath, as I mentioned earlier. In 1982, they brought in the Charter. It's called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the problem with that is every single document in the history of our law is about the people limiting the powers of the monarch. From Magna Carta to the Petition of Right to the Coronation Oath Act to the Act of Settlement to the English Bill of Rights and so on. They're all about the people limiting the powers of the monarch, except the Charter. It is about the state telling us what our rights and freedoms are going to be and basically what the limitations of them are going to be. And these unelected judges are the ones who make the determination of what these limits are going to be, politically appointed. And this charter is based on, similar to France, it's based on the Quebec civil law where the state tells you what your rights are going to be. So if I got in, one of my first objectives is to try and get rid of this charter I don't like the idea of a state telling me what my rights and freedoms are going to be and then appointing judges who are going to limit them even, even further that I don't even have a point, I don't even have the power to appoint the judge or vote on. them. So that that's got to go number one. And um, our goal is to get rid of that, uh, to get rid of that charter because we had more rights and freedoms before it than we have now. And um, this is where I admire your constitution down there because you've got freedom of speech, Limited only by Bible defamation and slander. Here in Canada, they got freedom of speech. But if a court decides that it's uh, it's it's reasonable to limit them, they'll take it away. And it, and the amount of times they've taken it away is, I I can't even count it. Just amazing. You guys would be shocked down there, to see how they've limited freedom of speech in Canada.
1: Uh, I think it's been limited globally at the moment, hasn't it? That's why. You know, we we see the censorship even in the independent sort of uh, internet networks and YouTube and so on and so on. The the censorship is horrific. That's another way of of, of, uh, limiting information. I mean, it it has on the other side given birth to a whole new range of other service providers. For example, you know, LBRY this week was in the headlines because I think the Google application... uh, website uh, was, was just removed it from there. So you can't actually get it from there anymore. So they found other ways to, to make it available to people. And then you have, you know, uh, and a whole host of other, other companies are coming up and providing um, more secure uh, ways of, of downloading information, which can't be tampered with so much. So there are upsides to all of this. And I think that it's not a question of the changes in the future, I think the change is happening already.
7: So, uh, look at the amount of people that are rallying. The amount of people rallying in Canada has never happened in our history. That is a positive sign. You get 10 or 20,000 in Montreal, thousands in Toronto. We got a sound here of 120,000. We're getting 100, 150, people coming out or more. That is positive change. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's keep it on that very very high note. Uh, I'm sure tomorrow, it marks the day, Saturday. I say it's already Saturday here, but I'm sure that there'll be many more freedom marches and uh, movements around the world. Do you have anything planned,
7: David? Yeah, we have a, a rally every Saturday here in the Okanagan in British Columbia and um, in Kelowna. We've had it for six months, without missing a day every Saturday for a couple hours. Incredible support that we get. There's a lot of people who are very supportive And we do that every Saturday. Incredible. uh, Well, we're we're rapidly coming up to
1: the end of the show. So I'd like to thank you very much for coming on. And it's been a real pleasure and very informative to hear all about your excellent work. And I hope you can come back in the near future and tell us some more about it. And uh, on the other side of successful solutions. Thank
7: you. Thank you very much. Hopefully we'll have more success next time.
3: Thank you, David. Thank
7: Thank you. you.